What is culture? La culture, c'est entre autres les éléments qui se transmettent d'une génération à l'autre et qui façonnent l'identité comme la langue, les récits et les croyances. Anthropology is more than researching social and cultural phenomena. It is also about sharing that research, which means representing our interlocutors and their communities. Our field, our research, and our scholarly writings are representational in nature. With representation comes responsibility, ethics, and even conflicts. Welcome to Notes from the Field. I'm Dr. Nathan Madsen. And I'm Dr. Sarah Riccardi-Swartz. Nathan, this is a topic that I find to be one of the most complex in our field. What comes to mind for you when you think about representation? I actually think back to one of our first classes in graduate school. Sarah and I went to graduate school together, so she'll remember this. And we would spend so much of our class period um, discussing the ethical representations of people in our social theory class. And we were supposed to be focusing on theory and how we're all connected as um, as social beings. But so much of the time was spent critiquing, praising, digging into these deep, complicated issues of what does it mean to write it in this way? Or what does it mean to talk about a different group of people in a particular way or show them in a particular way. And that's what I think about when I think about the ethics of representation. The ethics of representation is a really important key for anthropologists in understanding our research and our the people we work with as sources of information. We uh, hold ourselves to a ethical standard on how we represent depict and understand people um, through the different modalities of anthropology, whether that's writing or media. Right. And writing is and has always been sort of the bread and butter of anthropology. Um, we certainly have other ways of, of disseminating anthropological research, podcasting, for example, notes from the field, um, ethnographic film. But Ethnography is really what a lot of anthropologists use to share their research. And an ethnography is, you can think about it as a written description of a community and a people. Um, we are, as anthropologists, really focused on holistically and critically and contextually representing issues, personalities, ideas, people, communities. And it's that sort of holistic sense that the ethnography attempts to encounter. And it does it through oftentimes vignettes, personal stories. The, we're not just engaging with the literature that comes, from, uh, comes before us, although we definitely are. The ways in which we're analyzing a particular issue come through our interactions with people. What have we observed and the depiction of that of those observations um a critical reflection of where we are in that story what is it that we're bringing to this research simply by being there how are we changing things and what might our changes actually um enlighten when it comes to studying a social or cultural phenomena um and obviously interviews which 
is really critical to a lot of anthropological research too. Um, and these are these are long interviews. They're they're not just a quick five ten minutes trying to get to the main question that you have. They can take hours, and they can happen over several days. You may return to the same interlocutor five, six, seven, eight times during several months of research um, and keep talking about sort of the same things. And each conversation is enlightening a little bit more about those social and cultural phenomena. Um, but as I said, it, it it's really an attempt to portray things holistically. And that's important because as anthropologists, we recognize that we can't always just carve out a little slice of somebody's life and examine it in isolation, right? So my work is on LGBTQ plus activists in Hong Kong. And I can't just talk about that. I can't even just talk about um, sexuality and sexual orientation or gender identity. I have to be able to talk about the fears uh, that many Hong Kongers experience um, when they perceive the mainland Chinese government taking control over their city. And the more than 150 years of jockeying between Great Britain and uh, mainland China for control in Hong Kong, because those things, you might not see a connection right away, but those phenomena are also critical to understanding how queer people and trans people are treated in Hong Kong and why they're pushing for the different kinds of solutions that they have decided to work on. So attempting to just focus specifically on very particular issues will fail to capture really the ways in which these issues are deeply, deeply embedded in complicated social and cultural structures. But ethnographies have their flaws too. And this is something we'll talk a little bit more later about. But, you know, when we're writing something, and this uh, applies to film, which Sarah is going to talk about in a second, um, when we're putting that pen to paper, we're fixing a particular group of people and a set of phenomena in a particular moment in time. And that is sort of one of the biggest critiques of ethnography and ethnographic film. But Sarah, why don't you talk a little bit more about ethnographic film? Sure. I think you said it exceptionally well, Nathan, that um, at least for uh, ethnographic film, we often have to be mindful that um, we have to keep in mind that the lens is fixed on a particular moment, on a particular space, with a particular light in a particular frame. Um, and that's something that we're, it's, we always have to be conscious of as um, ethnographic filmmakers. Many anthropologists, including myself, use film and camera work to help us depict our communities. Now, ethnographic films can be documentaries, and we're all really familiar, especially in 2020 during the pandemic, of documentary films because I know a lot of us have been watched, binge watched them. But not all documentaries are ethnographic. What's the difference? <laughs> Thank you for asking that, Nathan. <laughs> I think the thing I love about ethnographic film and that I'm always conscious of as I'm watching documentaries is that for me, ethnographic films are focused on um, what Carl Heider, who's a visual anthropologist, calls whole bodies and whole acts. So these films incorporate anthropological ideas. 
They're often um, filmed in communities where the filmmaker has established uh, ties, and they tend to remain true to the events as they unfold. Um, I like to say that as an ethnographic filmmaker, I sort of sit with the people. I sit with the event, and I don't want it to go by too quickly. I want people to linger in that moment. Now, that being said, there's really no fixed rubric for what is or is not ethnographic documentary. Um, It's up to the interpretation of the filmmaker and their audience. Um, It's sort of, I always say, you know it when you see it. Um, And we'll talk about ethnographic filmmaking and documentary photography, which is another genre that um, anthropologists often use. We'll talk about both of those in another episode. But for now, I want to give us two examples of ethnographic film that might be familiar to the anthropologist listening. Um, and one for me really highlights the, the issues um, that Nathan brought up earlier about focusing on, on particularities. And one I think is an excellent example of um, how to represent a community um, on screen. So as Nathan has mentioned, we have we do have a lot of issues with uh, representation in anthropology, and ethnographic film is uh, also has that fraught history as well with colonialism, with the subjective gaze, which is uh, one that our artist our artists listening will be familiar with, uh, where we focus wholly on uh, a representation of the person outside of their body. And it also has a history of visual exaggerations of alterity, um, of, of difference. And as someone who works in Appalachia, I've seen this a lot in, in both documentaries um, and ethnographic documentaries about the region. I'm always drawn to films and books by and about Appalachians. And while there are some really exceptional documentaries about the region, I think one that for me is always sort of cringy in terms of representation is Peter Adair's 1967 Holy Ghost People. Have you seen it, Nathan? I haven't, no. Um, okay. You you should definitely watch it and uh, let me know if you feel the same cringe that I do. <laughs> um, in it, he uses the camera um, in, in specific frames to highlight the, the difference and the frenzy that he sees in a, in a Pentecostal religious experience. And to me, it's it's really quite um, self-indulgent as a filmmaker. He will take the camera and 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 get really close to a person who's having an aesthetic um, religious experience and, and focus solely on their face or their hand shaking or their hair moving. And um, his, you know, anthropologists have said that he's focused on this because he wants to highlight the sort of sensorial experiences of these people in their experience of, of God. But I think that, um, it doesn't do that at all. Rather, I think it actually, um, is a form of a subjective gaze that visually exaggerates the alterity of this community. And I know that at the time, Margaret Mead, who many of us know, praised the film for being like super ethnographic, but I don't know many anthropologists right now who would praise it. Um, So just as sort of our written anthropology has changed over time, our uses of the camera to document communities and practices have also changed um, 
over time. We've become more mindful of how to use the camera and in what ways to do that to get our point across, but not to, um, not to be so demeaning in our representations of people. You know, I think your description of Holy Ghost people, um, and this is something, of course, that we're going to talk a little bit later about too, but it, it gets back to that question of whole, um, holism and yeah. being able to depict someone holistically. And if you're focusing solely on what's making these Appalachians different, you are kind of missing the point of why are they different and what's making them, what's making what's happening on the screen make sense to Appalachians. Um, and, and that's, I think the mark of a good ethnographic film or a good ethnography is to, to answer the, why is this happening in a way that makes sense to the people who are actually being represented? Absolutely. So while Holy Ghost people, for me, is like a, a no, um, it's a thumbs down in terms of the ethics of representation, there are films um, that offer us really well done visual representation that have a solid ethics of representation um, that provide a really rich ocular glimpse into that sameness and difference that we're always wrestling with in anthropology. Um, one that's reflexive and collaborative collaborative. Um, and I'm going to mention someone who I've talked about before, Nathan, Barbara okay. Meyerhoff. Yeah. You talked about her in bias in our yes. week on bias. Yes. Um, and her name will probably come up a lot more as we go through this podcast, because I think she's an excellent example of just a wonderful anthropologist and filmmaker. Um, she produced a film called number of our days, which is the same name um, as her uh, written ethnography. Um, and this film actually won the 1977 Academy Award wow. for documentary film. Yeah. Um, and it's really an example of representation done well in the visual medium. It's reflexive. It's collaborative. At one point, we have Viber Meyerhoff appearing on camera um, saying, you know, someday I'll become an old Jewish woman. And at the same time, she's working with these elderly Jewish women and men. And so she's wrestling with these issues of gender and identity. And she's trying to explain um, how she sees herself in these people and how we can see ourselves in them at the same time. Um, she really highlights why it's important to study communities that are like us, um, just just as important as studying those who have long been marginalized as the sort of the exotic other, right? Anthropologists, early anthropologists would always go abroad to study people. Um, or they would, we think about Margaret Mead filming in Bali, mm -hmm. um, right? <laughs> that, that one always sticks out. <laughs> right. So yeah, so Meyerhoff does an exceptionally great job of saying, look, this is a community that I see myself in. Um, what what do we see in terms of sameness and difference? You can feel the collaboration when she's talking to people on, on screen. She reflexively goes back to herself as the anthropologist. So it's just, you know, it's an, an incredible example of the ethics of representation. And I highly recommend it for all of our listeners, including 
my wonderful sidekick, Nathan. Well, I'll have to check it out. Um, I, I think, you know, one of the ways that we can really sort of convey the importance and the, the primacy of representation in our work and in, in really the struggle that a lot of anthropologists go through when they are doing field work and when they're writing up or making films um, is to give you a little story uh, from my very first anthropology conference. Uh, I was in Hong Kong and this was a, um, an anthropology conference for graduate students in the region. And because I was doing my field work there, I decided to go to it um, And the very first question that I ever got after I delivered my paper was from this very famous anthropologist at Harvard who asked me, you know, from your paper, it seems like that you sympathize with your interlocutors and that you want to advance, help them advance LGBTQ plus equality in Hong Kong, or at the very least that you have an interest in their advancement of equality in Hong Kong. So what are you going to do if your research uncovers something that would paint these activists in a negative light? And I had to take a minute, I had to think about it, because I mean, at the very base level, being in your first conference, being asked a question by someone so advanced in your field is frightening, Um, especially a question that there's really no simple answer to. Um, But and and I keep thinking about this question and I think about it as I as I wrote my dissertation, I thought about it. As I have been writing articles to get published, I've been thinking about it. As I'm working on transforming my dissertation into uh, a book, I've been thinking about it. Because you're spending time with people, a lot of time with people, and you will inevitably uncover something that could potentially shed some that could air some dirty laundry, let's put it that way. And do you include that? If, if we're truly trying to produce a piece of holistic scholarship, isn't that important? And on the one hand, yes, it is important because these issues cannot be segmented out from people's lives. And so infighting amongst a group maybe critical to sort of understanding something. But if you share that information, is the Hong Kong government going to take that group less seriously if they ever read your article? Um, so there is no simple answer. And, and I think that that's really what I want to drive home, is that there is no simple answer when it comes to representation. Um <clears throat> Because if you are potentially undermining the efforts of activists in order to include some of these problematic findings, isn't that just like harming your interlocutors? Um, But if it was reversed and I was working with, for example, neo-Nazis, would I want to avoid including information that humanizes them, that depicts them as, you know, having just as much of a complicated relationship with 
the government, with the people around them, and the need for tolerance um, that LGBTQ activists would have? I don't have an answer to that. And I don't think any of us does until we really sort of like wrestle with that question. Right. You know, Nathan, I'm really struck by um, the comment that this this very famous anthropologist made to you um, about your your sympathies with your interlocutors. And I think my question back to them might have been, does it matter if I sympathize with them? Um, or does it even matter if I totally disagree with them? Um, you know, many anthropologists have, I think, the great opportunity to consider themselves activists on behalf of their communities or causes that are important to their communities. But then there are those of us uh, like myself who work with communities that we find really far removed uh, from us ideologically. And that brings up a whole nother set of ethical questions right. uh, regarding representation you know, actually, last summer I wrote an article, um, an online article for the American Ethnologist about the ethics of representation and the far right community I worked with in Appalachia, and I'll actually link that in our episode description for the for the podcast. But I think the challenges of representing a community with vast ideological differences is not easy, but it's essential. Um, even if we as researchers don't agree with our interlocutors or their projects or their ideas, their lives and their words and their actions are valid and meaningful, and they help us understand more about the human experience. You know, I've been having um, conversations with journalists and historians and theologians lately in a seminar that I'm in about uh, what's been happening in the United States, especially in, in uh, light of January 6th. Um, the insurrection at the Capitol. And one of the things we've talked about is, is it, should we even be talking to these far right folks? And I, you know, one of the things I've said is <laughs> we should definitely be talking to them um, because if we're not, we're talking to them, we're not understanding the human experience. We are not um, able to represent them accurately. And we see that a lot of times in media depictions of far right and even far left communities. They're not accurately depicted. But it also means that we're missing out on an, an essential uh, community that is part of our social structure. And what that means is that we don't understand our so social structure well enough. Um, so we should definitely be talking to them. Now, that's not always easy. Um, in fact, it's really, really challenging. Right. And, you know, and I would push that even a little bit further not and say that it's not just, you know, trying to understand somebody um, or a different group of people with different ideologies from us, but truly their interpretation of reality. Yes. Um, my mentor, um, my advisor, Sally Engelmary, told me very early on in my career, she works in human rights and the anthropology of law. Um, and a lot of what she's done has been on gender-based violence. And she had gotten a question at one point, and this is back when one of the biggest criticisms of anthropology was cultural relativism, that everything is okay if it makes sense in that culture. Um, and she's definitely not a cultural relativist, but she said the, the question of whether or not something is culturally relevant, a relativist or not, isn't really the important question to be asking. As an anthropologist, what you're supposed to be doing is pausing your own 
ethnocentric interpretation of something. It's to pause your judgment on something horrific, like female genital cutting, and to say, you know, we'll deal with the ethics of that later, but my job as a researcher is to understand why this makes sense within this community. What makes sense in these people's realities to include female genital cunning? And then you do the analysis and you can layer back in some um, some moral judgment if, if that's what the piece calls for. But it's not to say that it's okay simply mm-hmm. because it's happening and it's part of right. someone's culture, but that it makes sense in their reality. And that's really, I think, what both of us are talking about too, is to say we, we may, as uh, as anthropologists, be in these communities and we may not agree with what our interlocutors interpret as reality. We may not feel the same fears. We may not be concerned about the same things as them. And we may think that their fears and concerns on a personal level just don't make sense. But our job while we're there is to understand why it makes sense to them and then put that into our writing, put that into our film. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's what separates anthropology from um, things like journalism, right? Um, And even sociology. Um, There's a way in which we understand that we are we're writing about the human condition. We're writing about sameness and difference, whether we agree with it or not. Right, exactly. So let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about some of those problems related to representation um, that, you know, there is, there is no perfect representation. Um, that's something that I think every anthropology graduate student discovers when they're writing their dissertation (laughs) Um, that it's never going to be perfect. Um, But I think what's really important is to sort of know what those problems may be beforehand and try to avoid them as best as possible. But one of the biggest ones, and I mentioned it before, is this idea of um, stasis of of fixing something in a particular time or um, with a particular group of people. So by by that I mean that when you put something out there, an article, a book, uh, a film, that's going to be consumed for generations, and students other anthropologists, people in the government, whoever, they're going to be reading that and you don't know when they're going to be reading it, whether or not the lived reality in that particular location is the same when they're reading it as when you did the research and wrote it up. Um, But they're going to be reading it as if it is happening still to this day and the things maybe haven't changed. And it takes a, it is very important that people are aware that these are historical products, that they're written at a particular time under a particular set of circumstances, and that the minute that it goes out there, it could be very, very different, Um, but that it's a snapshot of a particular time. Um, And so one of the ways that we 
try in anthropology now is to avoid the ethnographic present, i.e. not using the present tense when we're writing, because by the time we're writing, it's already happened in the past anyways. Um, And so using the past conveys to the reader um, that, that this maybe is not what's happening currently. Right. But Sarah, what are some of the other problems that come with representation? Well, I think one of the major ones for me is recognizing and um, analyzing who has the power and privilege in a field site, Um, who has the power and privilege to represent this community um, and what that means as you're writing um, at depictions of particular people. and we have to be reflexive in this moment and ask ourselves, what as, what as ethical researchers can we do to subvert these, these hierarchies of power and privilege? The role of an anthropologist coming into a community uh, brings with it a certain kind of privilege and power, right? Mm-hmm. You're asking these people to embed in their lives for, you know, a, typically at least 12 months, sometimes even longer. Right. Um, and the fact that you're uh, usually attached to an institution gives you a certain type of privilege and status in that community. People look up to you and they often think that you're there to bring their ideas to other people um, in a way that they understand them to be powerful. Um, And sometimes they don't uh, recognize the ways in which we as anthropologists read their communities And so one of the questions is, how can we help our interlocutors uh, understand the ways in which we are representing them? Um, How can we destabilize the power and privilege that comes with representing this community? And one of the ways I think we can do that is making uh, our participants collaborators in the research process. Right. that's, you know, that means having those open conversations with people on the record about their ideas and how we understand those in the broader cultural context. Right. Some people have gone, you know, quite, quite far with their collaborations um, in quite powerful ways. They include interlocutors as co-authors on yeah. the work that they're writing um, or as co-directors or producers of ethnographic films. Um, they have a very central part of their fieldwork experience, returning the information and the data to the communities in which they were working and getting feedback and saying, this is what I saw. This was my interpretation of it. What do you think? And then including that feedback in um, in their ethnographies. And I think these are all important ways to, to really sort of, as you said, destabilize the, the hierarchies of power and privilege within a field site. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things we also have to recognize is that we as anthropologists are, are beholden to moral principles that are attached to the field of contact. And when we have our episode on field work, we'll get into this very complicated rubrics of moral principles that we hold that are both self-imposed and often um, put upon us by our institutions, typically um, an internal review board, which 
I'm sure you know about Nathan. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The the internet internal review board or the IRB is really central to any researcher. Um, not everybody has to do the same kind, but it is it's a way of reviewing a research plan before it actually happens to ensure that the people who are participating in research are being treated fairly, humanely. Um, that you're doing everything possible to minimize harm. And so it's a very important aspect of research because it's really asking the researcher to get out of their head for a second, not think about these quote unquote big ideas that they need to research, but to think about how is this going to impact the people you're working with? How is this going to you know, like, how are you going to protect them? How are you going to anonymize their information, right? There's, it's not sufficient to just change somebody's name if you're in a community that's small enough that if you still identify them by age, race, gender, uh, job, that anybody could figure out who they are. And so- I mean, with, within my own research and part of my IRB process um, and focusing on minimizing harm to research participants is I changed a lot of information um, about people so that it wouldn't be traced back to them, um, right. including and up to like combining certain people together and saying that, you know, John and uh, Mary are the same person so that they're, it can't be traced back to them or splitting an individual into two different people so that um, it's not going to be traced back to them. And of right. course, you need to be transparent about these things and you need to talk about the kinds of things that you've done to protect your interlocutors. But it it, it always circles back to minimizing harm. So um, oftentimes the IRB asks us to to weigh the benefit of sharing a portion of research um, versus the harm it may cause to the community. And that the default, the whenever you're in doubt, your interlocutors need to come first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, you know, and for those of us that work in communities where it's, it's very obvious to those who are um, adjacent to those communities, who these people might be, Um, and sometimes people are so popular, um, in, in their own social worlds that there's no way of masking them, um, in a way that can protect them. And so acknowledging that to them, um, on the record and asking them if they're okay, uh, with the potential of being, um, sort of outed to their community, if that's okay with them, um, then we can proceed. And, you know, for the most part, most people will say, yeah, that's okay. Um, and if it's not, then you just, you simply don't use their data. Right. So, um, you know, some of the other things that, um, we can briefly touch on in terms of the ethics of representation, um, but that we should really probably devote an entire podcast episode to later, um, (laughs) you know, is, the ways in which we're categorizing and classifying people. Um, and can you talk a little bit about that, Sarah? Sure. I, yeah, I definitely agree with you, Nathan. We, we, this is going to be a future episode for us, but I think that, um, 
you know, for someone who worked with a community who um, had a radically different reality than me, um, it, I often had conflicts with them in terms of representation. And um, if you read the article that I will link in our podcast description, it will illuminate the issues um, much more. But I think one of the things that we have to be mindful of as of anthropologists is imposing our categories and classifications onto others. Um, because we may be able to use these terms and ideas to help explain our research findings to other anthropologists and other um, social researchers, but they may not align with the ways in which our anthropologists um, understand themselves or the way in which they understand these categories and classifications. Um, so we have to ask ourselves if using these categories undermines our representation of the community. And that's where the the ethics of representation really comes into play. We have to have fidelity to the facts while we understand them in the broader context um, that allows the communities we work with to provide us um, a more rich, holistic, and even nuanced understanding of these larger social issues. And at the same time, we have to acknowledge our own biases, um, whatever those might be, personal, institutional, um, and even financial. Right. Right. I mean, we're, we're being funded by someone. Um, would that we live in a world where we could do unfunded research, but we don't. <laughs> and so... What dreamscape would that be? <laughs> right. <laughs> but... <laughs> So you ha you do you have to address that, and you know it often appears as a as a little bit of a, a throwaway in the acknowledgement center or in the acknowledgement section of a dissertation or a, of a book that says you know this research was funded by such and such grant, and then that's it. And you know, right. for for us, I don't think that that um, who we've been funded by necessarily. Um, plays a huge role in what it is that we're finding and how we're interpreting that data. But for other people, it might be, right? Absolutely. Like if you're being funded by the American government and you're working in, in indigenous Native American communities, you need to know that. The right. American government has had a long role of using anthropologists specifically, but researchers more generally in indigenous communities funding their research as a way to control indigenous populations and to um, and to really limit the ways in which they live their lives. Yes, I, I could not agree more. So, you know, the, these are a few things that we have to be mindful of as we um, go about our research and we go about um, creating whatever forms of representation um, we work with. So, Nathan, how can we resolve these ethical questions that plague representation? Is there any way to do that? I mean, again, I think there's no simple sort of answer, but it's really important. And I think that this is something that we don't often think about, but is something that our research does not exist in a vacuum. So the representations that we are making are important not just for 
maybe the five or six people who are going to, that we think are going to read our work. (laughs) It's going to be read. It's going to be consumed by people across the country, across the world. And because some of the people who are going to be consuming this media are governments, nonprofits, funders. This can be important in the decision-making process that they use uh, on specific social interventions. If you portray a social issue as really not that pressing of a concern, a nonprofit from your interlocutor's community may apply for funding and be denied because you wrote something that said it's really not that big of a deal. Right. Um, governments may choose to intervene in a community because you have depicted it as being very perilous. So it, it's important to think about these things have real world impacts. And, and it's not just about sharing and spreading knowledge, it can have very material effects on people's lives. And so this desire, and I would say moral imperative to not harm your interlocutors needs to be thought about and theorized beyond just the representation of a group in terms of knowledge sharing, but as the potential to have long lasting material effects on the community. Yeah. And I think this is why we have to return to our communities and ask for feedback. Um, We have to think about the ways in which um, we are portraying them, even if we don't like what we see on the page. um, If we're doing it in an ethical way, that's what's important, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, as, as somebody who works with far right groups, I sometimes don't like what I'm reading about my own communities I work with. And and these are the words for my own interlocutors on the page. But I know that I went about it in an ethical way. I represented them to the best of my ability as a social scientist. And whether or not I agree with them, um, you know, I have put my own biases on the record and to the side so that the ethnography is about them in the end. And that's the best that we can hope is that an ethnography allows us a representation of the pe- of the people we work with in their in all of their humanness in all of their experiences and um, in all of their ways of being. Well, thank you for listening to Notes from the Field. Next episode, I'm going to be interviewing my co-host Sarah, and we're going to be diving deeper into her research. Production support provided by J.D. Swart, Ran Mo, Anisha Chadha, Shravan Amin, Jerome Yao, Mauro Castro Martinez, Divyam Singh, and Florence Mohan Matel.